Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by The Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Good morning. So good to see you this morning. I promise you I will not be standing on the pew today. That's an inside joke for a few of you. I'm a little sentimental. They tell you as you get older that maybe you get a little more sentimental. But uh, sitting here today, and I know this wasn't the original building, but at the founding of your church, Brother Barber, immediately, obviously, uh, with a passion for winning the lost and, and winning this town and making an impact on the world, uh, there was a number of young people that surrendered to ministry. One of those young person was a uh, young man by the name of Gene Arnold. Now, I don't, how many know that name? Anybody know that name? A few of you. By the way, this is the way God works. Uh, uh, his name be praised. There's only one person worthy of celebrity in this room, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Only one worthy of receiving any recognition or awards. It's not by Hollywood. It's by the kingdom works, and that's our Savior. Gene Dotson uh, came to Christ, uh, affiliated with this ministry, had a passion uh, to go and, and called into ministry and left here and went to Roanoke along with the son of the founder. He also uh, assumed a leadership role in this church. But uh, Gene went to Roanoke and started uh, the Fellowship Baptist Church. And uh, that church grew to about a thousand, a lot of things happening in that unique uh, day. And there was a uh, young teenage girl uh, that uh, soon came to Christ, the first in her family, her aunt and uncle, her dad, Becky's dad, was an alcoholic, a World War II uh, returnee, and came back, uh, uh, honestly, very uh, challenged, unsaved. But his brother, my wife's uncle, Uncle Grover, uh, came to Christ, and Bessie and a few family members led to Christ by Gene Arnold. Who then later, my wife, and I like Becky, would you mind standing? When I left here as the interim, everybody says, we're going to miss you, Dave, but we're sure going to miss her. Um, she worked in the nursery, and she came to Christ uh, there at Fellowship in Roanoke. And uh, I would later meet her at a, at a school, Bible Baptist Seminary, now it's Arlington University, where Raymond Barber would be uh, my professor and teacher of Life of Christ as well as Becky. Becky and I met that first year, were engaged and married. And so, uh, and I know there's many different uh, contributors to our spiritual genealogy, but it's so nice to stand, the Lord didn't have to do this, but this morning for me to have kind of a moment to know that my sweetheart of 51, 52 years, <laughs> I already know she's gonna correct me because I get it mixed up sometimes, 52 years, is a direct descendant, spiritually and then humanly, as a result of the faithfulness of Brother Barber's founding this church. Uh, his ministry, of course, his son's ministry, extended ministers that came along, and uh, we're standing here today, that fruit that remains. If the Lord allows, Becky and I, fruit of this ministry, your daughter in the faith, Becky, we will see uh, over 750,000 people through 32 international centers and uh, 50 some years of service in local church as she and I have served. Uh, about three quarters of a million people come to Jesus Christ as Savior because one of many things, your pastor, founding pastor, invested in a young man, Gene Arnold, planned a church in Roanoke, led to Christ this young lady, married a minister, and together we are partnered. And that's just one of the now stories. That's why you know what heaven must going to be look like when we get there, because many of us are going to be surprised. One will be surprised that some made it. <laughs> and that will also be, uh, in that day, many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I don't know who you are, uh, will not be there. But I so thank God 
for the witness and the testimony of this faithful church over the years. I'm not one who lives in the past. Every person I worked with, uh, when Becky and I went to Lynchburg in 73, was there for 21 years, two decades. All the ones on that platform, from Doug Odom to Don Norman to Jerry Falwell to David Ranlett to Brother Horsley of Elam Home uh, to Ed Heinsohn, all are now with Jesus. And I happen to think maybe they're looking. I actually believe that late great crowd of witnesses are some of those, including a barber or two up there, who's looking down and taking note of God's wonderful glory here. I am honored and humbled that you would invite me here. And I'm glad that I am here. I didn't know when I, I uh, was serving here, I had leukemia. I left my work here in that uh, fall and I went to Nigeria, came back with a normal checkup and discovered 18 uh, tumors. And my doctor said, it's above my pay scale. And so we got ready to pass on and um, the Lord saw fit to allow me to stay a few more days. I was ready and desired, I have to tell you. But I also was captivated by the reality of my attachment to this life and my commitment to the gospel to make sure that I finish the task he's given me. This could be my last sermon, probably won't be, but I've learned since then that every interaction I have, relationship I have, uh, certainly every sermon I preach, if this is my last, may it be my best. Anointed by God, the right length in time. For those of you who are very sensitive about time, we'll try to be sensitive on that as well. Now, a very familiar text and a very familiar story. I invite your attention to um, the gospel of Luke, Luke the physician. I love it. Uh, this is a parable we're about to hear. Parable is a made up story with significant, um, deep spiritual meaning told in a simplistic way. Jesus, Jesus often spoke in parables. Beginning in verse one of Luke chapter 15, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be many more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. There's a, a quick key, a, a hermeneutic key in interpreting a parable. Take a quick look at the audience. And if you notice in the first few parts of this chapter that there are four categories, maybe five categories, of people that Jesus almost... Uh, while they were accusing him, I love the way he handled this Baptist Wednesday night business meeting. Someone raised a hand and wants to make an issue with the agenda. I love it that the preacher of the day, the Lord Jesus Christ, just turns and says, can I tell you a story? That was a wonderful, brilliant way. And there's even a little bit of humor. I would even suggest sarcasm in his response, but yet loving, truthful uh, truth in this one. There were the sinners, there's no doubt about that. The audience says, then there's identified sinners. The rank and file population that happened to be around, maybe those who were viewed as parasites hanging on to the latest novelty speaker and, and they didn't have you know internet and all the different things, there were circuses. And there's this person in town that was healing and raising the dead and speaking unusual things and the gifted community crowds would follow them and so, You'd have some sinners tag along just out of a crowd. Then you had tax collectors. These are publicans, one who contracted with the Roman government to collect taxes. 
this tax collector to use subcontractors as well. He was held in the lowest esteem. And so this audience with whom Jesus is speaking and that I'm lifting his message today about those, that one that was lost, uh, we know that there were those tax collectors and they were not viewed by uh, the, the rank and file, the, the low of the day, the high of the day. All of them looked with, at them with common condescension, those tax collectors. Then the Pharisees, they were the largest dominant religious group of the day, the most influential that went beyond just uh, the synagogues. They had tremendous political influence of the day that would even move elections and be supported uh, by the Roman government, I might add. Largest and most religious political party during the New Testament times, more than 6,000. They controlled the synagogues and exercised great control over much of the population. The sinners, the tax collectors, the Pharisees. The scribes uh, were those who were given the task, the vocation of actually writing the Word of God, the old, we would say Old Testament. And since they didn't have the printing press, these are people that gave their entire life to, that would pause, even when they came to the name Jehovah, they would stop and pause for prayer. It was a tedious, long task, one that was without error. But from the original text, they would take and write these scribes. And so these are the ones that were keepers of the scrolls and the ones that would read the word for the, uh, for the Jews of the day, and especially that Old Testament. So that was a very interesting audience that this parable was to address. And I also added, which is kind of unspoken, the core group, the ones who followed Jesus, those who were handpicked and selected, the 12, they were in the audience that was going to receive this parable that I've labeled Lostology. Uh, we know of the 12, only one later would remain at the cross. John, the youngest of them, takes a teenager, quite honestly, often to lead adults. There were two sets of professional fishermen, four, two brothers each, that were followers. One of those, some would question because he cursed at the fire when Jesus was being crucified, talking about Peter. And everyone knows Judas, the Old Testament predicted that one day he would be the betrayer. Uh, Jesus at the last table would identify the one that's eating bread and would leave the room. He is the one that would betray me. And he is the one that stepped forward at that late night in the presence of the Roman soldiers that told all that I'll identify the one because he looks so typical as everyone else, speaking of the Lord. Judas saying, I will identify him by kissing him. And then you'll know that's the one you need to take and I've earned my 30 pieces of silver. And at that kiss, Jesus' response was, friend, betray thou the son of man with a kiss. I don't understand all the aspects of the sovereignty of God, but I know that Jesus loved Judas to the very end. That's the stage is set for this parable to be addressed where the intelligence of the day, the most influential of the day, scolded the Savior. And his response was, I think, maybe a little bit of a pause. And as they were ready to put him on edge and to create anger in the Savior, I happen to think a little bit like that Danny smiles. Is there anybody on the planet can smile like your pastor? <laughs> he calms my heart with that unique gift. That was my very first impression of your pastor when I first met him and that unique gift of love and encouragement, a sanguine temperament. I'm your friend, even a friend of the enemy. And Jesus responded, I happen to believe, and I know it's not written here, but the manner in which he, he responded was not to respond in kind, not to defend himself. He who knew everything, all things were created by him and for him. Without him, nothing was created. He was all knowledge. He was the word of God. Rather respond and put them in place, he basically kindly, maybe with that Danny smile, said, oh, can I tell you a story? And he talks about a hundred sheep and how one of them went astray and how this wonderful shepherd left all 99 at an open field 
and sought and searched and found that one. Now, we all relate to that. I certainly relate to that one. And he found that one and put him on his shoulders. And think of that. I had a little bit of a picture when we began on this one, but he brought that sheep that was lost back to the fold and to awe, and they had a big hoedown, a big celebration. And so from the founding of this church, through Gene Arnold, through a little teenage girl, through a wonderful teenage husband, through my own three adult children, to three quarters of a million, that wonderful story has been repeated, not just in me, certainly, but here in Danville and beyond, and the preachers that have gone beyond, and the, the women and the men who've come to know Jesus because someone sought them. And here we sit this morning in celebration. I want you to pause. I want you to be blessed by looking over your spiritual genealogy and taking note in September, you're gonna have another homecoming day. I hope it's the most attended day of all days. I hope that everyone that ever has any kind of a connection to the roots of this founding of this church. It was not founded by a man, it was founded by Jesus Christ himself. And in the founding of this church, way beyond us after we're dead and gone, like its founder. There'll be thousands, if not millions, that will come to know him as savior because someone caught the elementary childlike story of the one sheep that went astray. So with that in mind, let's take a look. I have to tell you, there are two people. I've had three sermons that over my, um, let's see, it's been 54 years of ministering first as a youth director at Central Baptist Church in Arlington, Texas at the age of uh, 18, up into and including my associate pastor role at Thomas Road. I borrowed three sermons. One was from Adrian Rogers. Now he deserves to be stolen from. <laughs> Net fishing, I've actually preached that here. This one was taken from a pastor friend of mine, uh, Herschel York, at Ashton Avenue uh, uh, at the time in Lexington, Kentucky and also uh, who's a homiletics uh, preaching professor at Southern Seminary, one of my dearest friends, who stole it, I don't want to give him all the credit, Herschel York, from John Kemp in 1995, a book written, Out of Their Faces and Into Their Shoes, a national publication. Since I oversee pastoral training at Liberty University, I tell preachers, don't ever preach a sermon and sell it as your own if it's not. Uh, they, you will lose your credentials. So what I've done is taken Herschel York and uh, this author, and I've uh, taken the best from what I could, and most of it you would not recognize on the subject of lostology. And I look at this text and let the word of God be my guide on studying the study, the theology of studying lostness. First of all, here's a principle we know. That young sheep that went astray and every human being since did not know they were lost. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And that's from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. One characteristic you have to acknowledge that lost people don't know they're lost. Now, I'm from generations of Adamses, that's my last name, the original Adams family, better than the cartoon and better than the movie. And I also may add, if you knew my family well, even weirder than what was presented on television and in those two movies. My family is a John Wayne type, real men were not religious. Religion was for religion, religious and women. Real, uh, Real men did not succumb to the weakness of uh, belief. And so good guys, John Wayne types for generations. And I was the first in my family that a public school English teacher basically embodied this passage and found a 17-year-old kid sitting in second period English class making a wisecrack and she paused and she said, David, you know where little boys go that lie, don't you? And I said in response to her out of disrespect, yeah, and I'll see all of my friends in hell. 
All my classmates at Tuskegee Valley High School, we laughed and cut up and we had a moment of brevity kind of mocking the teacher who was extremely popular, but she broke through the laughter and in total sobriety, she looked at me and said, David, you won't see anyone. And in a few moments, she did what very few preachers do in all of America and even in Danville, what your pastor did just a few moments ago. Even before service started, he gave the gospel. Thank you. It's possible to go to churches, even Baptist churches, and go to the entire service and never hear the gospel. I'm talking about conservative churches. The lost don't know they're lost. My dad didn't know it. In fact, there was an entire movement. The lost people, have you ever wondered, how, why is it in our culture today, who would have thought even when I last served here as your interim, that we have gone so far to be confused over issues that children would know. What is a boy? What is a girl? Come on. I mean, think about what's happened in our culture. Right has become wrong and wrong has become right. And those who are right are given the credentials of having hate speech. It's a day in which we live. It's a confused world. But amidst all of that, oh, may God give us a gift of encouragement. May we not pause and put on a armor in a wrong fashion, but we suit up with the armor of God and go looking for that lost sheep. And the reason they behave like that is they don't know they're lost. Some of you have a grandchild that's lost and you wonder how can they behave like that? Some of you have sons and daughters, some of which are adults now, and you ask yourselves, why on earth? How on earth? They grew up, Becky grew up in an abusive home. I grew up in an unsaved home, somewhat abusive. We're the first family to ever form in our generation and our lineage of this. Our three children grew up in Christian home, uh, Christian school. One of the three children went. Uh, as best we could, they were prayed for every day. We agonized over them. We self-sacrificed for them. And how in the world could they leave the Adam's Garden of Eden <laughs> and take the forbidden fruit? Because the lost, even if they grew up in your home, they don't know they're lost. For Satan has blinded their eyes and mind. Number two on the list. This I know it's a simple but why do sheep get lost? They don't know they're lost. That's why they straggle toward the cliff. That's why later the lost coin, but especially in this, uh, this parable he's telling, the lost son, the first and the second, both are lost. They don't know it. And quite frankly, they're happy being lost. Later we're going to see the story of the elder brother and also the second born son. And it's amplified in the sheep is that Man, the second born, he went and lived in riotous living. Uh, the word pornea is actually in there where we get the word pornographic. He lived in seduction, level of Sodom and Gomorrah type life. How in the world could that second born who had the benefit of a mom and a dad, Jews who grew up in this wonderful way, Jesus telling this parable, and even having an older brother that's straight and narrow, how in the world could he choose up to get to the place that he even look at his parents and say, no, you're not buying a Winnebago. No, 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 no. You're not buying an additional car, an additional house. I want my inheritance now. I'm not waiting till you're dead. That's what the second born said. And he took all of that money and went and riotous this living. And he liked it. Just like the firstborn in that same parable enjoyed being the one that stayed at home. And I never left you and I never spoke ill of you. And I always followed you. Can you not see how happy he is with himself? Aren't you amazed sometimes? Some of you have gotten in a bubble possibly. You've gotten around church people so often. You, you get around lost people like a person visiting a zoo. And you look through their culture and you mock them in the security and safety of your little, what you think is the real world. And the truth of it is the real world in this world is the people in the zoo behind the bars. If you're not careful, you need to understand your role is not to be a protectionist in this tabernacle bubble. 
Your responsibility is to be a friend of sinners, just like they accused our Savior of. Why? Because lost people don't know they're lost, and lost people are happy. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has done, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. Someone asked, why do you sin? Because I like it. Because it feels good. Satan's greatest strategy is not to give you something repulsive. Satan's greatest strategy has been, always will be, when he held up that forbidden fruit and she said, I'm not to eat. And he said, oh, has God really said that? He knows what's best for you. In fact, let me just tell you, Satan says to the woman, if he knows that when you eat this fruit, you'll know everything. You'll be a lot like him. You'll be more pleasing to him. And Satan and sin and the world seduces us. I often say to the students who are studying for full-time ministry at Liberty, uh, it's very fascinating to see this. Satan often will put a good thing in front of you to keep you from the great thing. And you've heard this before, so it's not original with me. And so we know that sin is pleasurable. Is it not, by the way? That's why we do it. It's also that kind of pleasure is addictive. But even the Bible says sin's pleasurable for what? For a season. Number three, the lost don't seek to be found. So why are you all bummed out with all the YouTube messages and the tracks you leave and the initiative you take with your niece or your, your nephew or your cousin or your brother, your mom or your dad? My dad didn't come to Christ until a few months before he died at the age of 70. I hammered him from the time I was 17. I tried every technique known to human beings. Pulled out the two before, hit him over the head. Dad, you're going to hell. I tried that approach. I tried the loving, kind, generous approach. We need to understand that they don't seek to be found. So if you're brokenhearted because the person you love the most may be a spouse, maybe they never really were saved. There's no indication that they were because there's not even a film of guilt about them. So you say you want to make people doubt whether they're saved. And my answer to that is not really, but I also know that we need to help them be assured and so uh, Dr. Bailey Smith, speaking in Colorado to one of the largest gatherings of preachers in America, spoke to that group of just pastors. And his message, basically several years ago, Dr. Smith said his greatest fear in, our, in speaking to pastors in our Baptist churches is that our pews might be filled with unsaved people. That because they repeated a prayer of being faithful to church. I have to tell you, I, when I first heard that, I was repulsed by it a little bit, and I realized some of the meanest, honest people I have ever met in my life are in the church. Things that were said, behavior that was displayed, meanness, not the, not the aspect of grace, but the opposite of grace. And so it's not a surprise that even among us, the one of the 12, Judas, some suggested maybe even Simon, I believe Simon was saved, but uh, we know that, that, that among us, there may be the lost and the lost don't seek to be found. They're not looking for that audience. That's why when you invite them, would you come to Easter with me? Would you go to this men's group with us? It's uncharacteristic of them because you know Jesus. It's normative for you. But what's unusual, and we've known this in church growth, they don't come because the event is so spectacular at the church. They come because you're spectacular and you have an intimate relationship with them. And when you say, come and go with me to that, I don't know, what is that celebration, they go with you. We know relationships is the instrument that God uses more than any other program to reveal himself to a lost world. It takes a shepherd going after a sheep. It takes a husband going after his wife, a mama going after a grandson, and it going after forevermore. Don't be weary in well-doing because we know that the lost, they don't seek to be found. And why are you stunned by that? The shepherd have to go find his sheep. 
The sheep didn't say, oh, here I am, didn't even help him at all. And then we know number four, the lost enjoy the company of others who are lost. This is such a simple message. Uh, thank you, Dr. York. And I also want to thank the author of the book. And of course, I made it so much better. <laughs> this is the most simplest message. I actually preached this message within the first six weeks when I did a series here with you. So if some of you say, oh, this is interesting. Uh, some of you say, well, you were probably doing what I did back then, put you to sleep during this deal. But this is the, this is the word of God lifted right for us about lostness. And also, I hope it's a way of encouragement of you and for you. Because some of you have been spent all of your life. The first person I tried to win to Christ was my dad when I was 17. Got saved December 10th, 1969. The very first person I went to was my dad. And I discovered that my dad and mom who got married at 15 and 16 years of age. Never finished high school. Worked a job. Bought a rig himself. Became a truck driver. Then a period built houses. When he was married, mom and Dad, their first child, died of spinal meningitis at eight years of age. My dad was mad at God when he prayed that prayer as a lost teenager, married teenager. Oh God, take me, not Lila. Lila's with Jesus right now. But my dad, all of his life, was so bitter until at Altman Hospital in Canton, Ohio, where a guy I had led to Christ, a quarterback I played with, in a waiting room, knelt with my dad with his cane, who'd been in a motorcycle accident as a younger man, prayed out loud to receive Jesus Christ as his personal savior. So from 17 years of age until up till 20 years ago, I prayed for one man's soul every day and every time I saw a truck, an 18-wheeler, and I found out there were trucks and uh, uh, Tokyo and Michigan and uh, certainly in uh, Moscow and Paris. Everywhere again, there were trucks and every time I prayed for a truck in my mind subconsciously, I prayed for one man's soul. I'm going after the lost sheep. I'm going to be relentless. I'm not going to give up. I'd like to have had the privilege to lead my dad to Christ myself, but by the way, who's his salvation for? Sometimes we make this a part of our pride. Who do you, what, who makes the difference? Whether it's Harvey that led him to Christ at Altman Hospital in Canton, Ohio, in that uh, January year of his death a few months later, who makes a difference? Lost people enjoy being lost. Their current world mindset expressed by the ideals, opinions, goals, hopes, and views of the majority of people. It encompasses the world's philosophies, education, and commerce. Satan blinds men to God's truth through the world system he has created, suggested by John MacArthur. Second Corinthians says, we demolish arguments and even pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That's what we do when we are in the presence and feel like a minority. That the culture and every news outlet, some of you have been punked down. You allow the, the minority that's aggressive and assertive that has wrong um, biblical views to dominate our culture. I'm talking really a public school system that we integrate scope and sequence of curriculum that's anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-made in the image of God. We, we treat it as normal. We let that culture, um, only a minority of the American doesn't believe what, what's being propagated there. And we let them through their curriculum, their treatment, and we become pedophiles grooming our first and second graders by the role models we put in front of them and the curriculum we hand them. Now, I'm sure that's not happening in Danville. That's called sarcasm. <laughs> and we need to assert, first of all, our love for Jesus. And also, I want to remind you, you are an American citizen. Every one of my grandchildren who are now in Louisville, Kentucky, I go to their open houses. I meet they're teachers. I asked a teacher, I'm one science teacher, I asked, tell me about your first couple of weeks of school. And he was so proud of himself, he began to talk about a lot of the social justice stuff. And I looked the teacher in the, in the eye, I said, look, I, two of my graduate degrees are in education. One of them has to do in administration and guidance counseling. What in the world has that to do anything with science? 
stunned him. He thought I was going to pat him on the back. I said, I am one grandparent and voter that believes you ought to teach science. And I also ought to hold, only takes of seven school board, seven, seven school board members, four of which hires a superintendent. Get out of this cubicle. For every one private homeschool Christian school student, there are nine public school students, and we are discipling them in opposition to the formation and the image of God. Shame on us. So just be yourself. You're standing in line at the grocery store and someone says something to them. You can be kind. You can be generous. But remember who you are. Why are you punking down in Carantale? And also, you Bible bangers out there, don't be weird. Some of the weirdest people I've met are Bible bangers. You go into this mode and you put a magic disc between you and the other and you're not even human. That's not a representation of Christ. Christ was able to slip right into the crowd while retaining his holiness. He could just walk away when they wanted to come and get him by force and kill him. So we need an integrative approach to the culture, identify the culture, use the culture to reach the culture. I become all things to all men that I might by all means win some. That's the model the apostle gave us and how to approach the lost. The lost enjoy the company of the lost. That's why it bothers me when I see a conservative Christian enjoy the oddities of our culture, the things that you do to your body and take in your body, the things you put in front of your mind and view and watch and become addicted to. You say you're a believer? Does that not come in conflict with the internal Holy Spirit who abides in a believer? How can you observe and participate in the things that the world, the lost, enjoy when you say you're a Christian? Okay, I'm going to give you a little sidebar. Some of you prayed a prayer. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's second grade. Here's what I want to ask you. I want to revert back to that moment because we're about to have a record breaker at Liberty University. By the way, our faculty and staff and our incoming freshmen all-time record enrollment. I'm thrilled at this. And we know that the first old month at Liberty, the cream of the crop, about 85% of our students come from churches just like this. They'll probably have maybe a student or two that's coming from here. They'll be traveling an hour up the road. But there'll be a setting where we'll be putting the gospel and we'll have students who grew up in church all their life that will come to know Christ as their Savior. How does that happen? How is it that people grew up in church all their life? It's because they didn't have clarity. I teach a family class in the pastoral ministry, coaching up pastors how to equip dads and moms how to give the gospel to their children. Because it's just not a matter of repeating a prayer. Do you want to ask Jesus in your heart? By the way, where do you get that? Just asking Jesus in your heart is not enough. Even if they come forward in a service and they do it because everyone else or vacation Bible school. Here's the minimal components and we see this in Corinthians. What is the gospel? And what's a fair hearing of the gospel? Is it possible for a person to know Jesus Christ as a personal savior to be saved if they do not believe in the deity of Christ? And the answer is impossible. So can a sixth grader, seventh grader, first grader believe that Jesus Christ is God? Or when he prayed, Jesus, come into my heart, did he have in his mind that Christmas story where you have a baby in a manger and he's praying for that, that Jesus to come into his heart? If it's, a, if it's a stereotypical baby in a manger that he is praying for and he's not thinking that Jesus always did exist, by him all things were created. All things were created by him. And all things were created for him. Without him, nothing was created. If they cannot understand or conceive in their belief system that Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem, Jesus existed before Bethlehem. There was never a time that Jesus did not exist. In fact, whether it was Melchizedek, you guys are Bible students. I know one of the strengths of this church, there are serious Bible students here. So when you study Melchizedek, you know that was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. And probably God walking in the cool of the day in the garden was a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. And even before man was created there in Genesis, God himself, Jesus Christ, existed before Satan. So here's the component. When you ask a person to receive Christ as your personal savior, 
You may not have the sophisticated terminology uh, that one would use in a theological world. I'm okay with that. But a child is old enough to understand that Jesus didn't begin in the manger. And if that's the only Jesus you taught, our children's ministry, our parents primarily, and especially our dads, have fallen short. I don't need them to repeat a prayer. They need to believe the gospel. So when you prayed the prayer, did you believe that Jesus Christ was God? If you repeated a prayer, even though it sounds good to the day, I want you to doubt your salvation because it's not good enough. Is it possible for a person to go to heaven and not believe in the resurrection? That after he was put to death, no man took his life from him. He gave it freely. And when he said, Father, into thy hand I commend my spirit, the Bible records he then died. They put him in a borrowed tomb and with that big old rock in front. And on his own strength, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. I'm quoting from the King James there. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. A lot of people do only that, verse, verse 13 of chapter 10 of Romans. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. But it's understood when you're calling on the name of the Lord, you're calling on the risen Son of God and God the Son. Give me an amen. Amen. So the reason why a lot of people, Bailey Smith discovered in Colorado, speaking to several thousand Southern Baptist pastors, when he pronounced and was concerned that our churches are dominated by lost people, is because it's no wonder. By the way, I would say to my pastor, have you ever wondered, how could that person be so mean, so vindictive? Well, maybe, frankly, he is a born-again Christian. He's about to invite God, come and kill me. Because such behavior suggests, God, I'm your disobeying child. Spank me, correct me, or kill me. But if you can live without guilt and behave like you behave, you ought to doubt your salvation. You do what you want. And if you're constantly being duty-driven, a car is compelled, oh, go to church, go to this, go do that, straighten up there, dress like this. If someone is constantly externally and you're upset with them and you even put down mom and dad, they just nag me, they're my enemies, or so-and-so, that boss, is, I just don't like that boss. One of the greatest indications you're a follower of Jesus Christ that your person understands submission of authority, even when your authority is lost. I got another message on whole indicators that you're saved. The lost enjoy the company of the lost. Number five, they don't understand the consequences of being lost. They just don't understand it. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God for they are foolish to him and they cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, they don't grasp what you understand just by your daily devotions. They don't understand being lost. How are the lost discovered? Well, note that all three sheep, sheep, coins, and sons, were the losers. The one who was lost is the focus. God knows where they are. God speaks and seeks them. God invites them to come. And he carries them home. Look at the strategy God uses. If you happen to be a guest here today, or maybe you've been coming for a long time, somehow God's been through the Holy Spirit, maybe through a relative or a friend, has been wooing you. Because God knows you. He seeks you. He invites you. He carries you. Once a person bows his heart and receives Christ as a Savior, the results of the lost being found are very simple. Intimacy. I was afraid of the dark teenager, student body president, captain of the football and basketball squad, sleeping by myself. Parents had abandoned me at the time, but I was an achiever. And with all that external flamboyant confidence I projected to all my friends, at night I slept with a ball bat. I had panic attacks. I was scared to death. And then Jesus Christ saved my soul. And dark places weren't so fearful for me anymore. Why? Because intimacy with the Savior and eternity in my heart. 
The result is celebration among the family. That's why you guys party a little bit when you baptize. Or when that person comes to Christ. Joy in heaven. I would love to hear that unbridled joy that when one sinner comes to Christ, this is the passage that's often mentioned, and in confidence about eternity. So let's all be experts on lostology. The average funeral is attended by 200 people. Now those who do the funeral business, they know this because this is their income, their market, the size of the facility, the resource, a lot of things I could tell you why they know that, but the average is about 200 people. Average person in this room, and I know some more, some less, that tells me that over a given lifetime, three score and 10, 70, I'm one year beyond my promised time from God, but three score and 10, 70 years, the people will get on a plane or make, get in a car and drive your funeral to show respects. The people you impacted that much that would actually do that are about 200. So I would say if every born again believer had as a commitment in their life that before they died, they may not be able to make your funeral. There'd be some 200 people who've heard the wonderful, glorious gospel that Jesus Christ died according to scripture, was buried and rose from the dead through your lips, reinforced by your testimony and you giving them an, an encouragement to respond to the gospel. It'd be wonderful to know this, those 15 million Southern Baptists and those 46 Southern Baptist churches, and that's just one of about 700 various denominations and offshoot groups, would just be about the gospel. From the grave, I say to Gene Arnold, there's a teenager that needs Jesus. Social services was about to take little Becky Pickerel out of the home because mama was neglecting her. But through the ministry of Fellowship Baptist Church, the message went all the way to a rough side of town to the door of a teenage girl. And she birthed three children and she has been involved through evangelism and leading thousands to Christ. Let's be about our Father's business, Tabernacle. Don't be weary in well-doing. The job is not yet complete. Guess what? They're bringing that casino to town. For those of you who are rattled because our culture's changing, well, you didn't start it, you didn't invent it, you voted against it, but here she comes. And God's going to bring you a whole new field, ripe, ripe for the gospel. They didn't know because they were lost while they were serving wherever they were serving and doing whatever they were doing. And they're coming here to get into their sinner's mischief. Maybe selling a car, working at the bank or something more illegal. And God brings them into your neighborhood right next to you or at the office or at the plant or in the school or in the campus. Or maybe through your church door. And rather than being ostracized, one of the things they should feel is what Jesus felt when he expressed it to the sheep. Come on, little sheep. That rod and the staff, I call it the club and the hook. That rod with that big hook on it, he taps him on the butt, that sheep, and he kind of runs away, and then he hooks him in and pulls him in and loves him to himself. That, in essence, in a nutshell, is the ministry of the tabernacle. Hug him and club him. <laughs> Salt and light. Truth and mercy. So from your founder to all the successful pastors that have followed, including this one right here, don't be discouraged. Look at some of you. Some of you are so old. I'm so sorry. I looked at myself today. I, I use a cane. I don't like to use it publicly, but I'm not what I once was, but I got a memory. I ran two-mile run. I run those plays and blah, blah, blah. But as long as I can somehow make my way to the front of a class or if the Lord allows me in a church, a privilege like today, I want to say to all of us, you old-timers in this room, who's to say that your best is yet to come? Don't you become like a child. My mom's 94, assisted care. The lady led me to Christ, 97, assisted care. Now she's on a hospice. Even while she's losing her mind, 
Wanda Slafey, that English teacher, she is winning people to Christ. It's, it's so odd. And Gene Arnold, did you know this? The one I referenced earlier? When he was losing his mind in Roanoke, all the nurses and staff would line outside his door. Becky, is this not true? What did he do? Tell us. He thought he was on the radio preaching the gospel from beginning to end to the invitation and appeal to come to Christ. One of your fruit from this church, even up to the day time, was thinking about the lost. So I encourage you. If you're lost, get saved. What's the matter with you? Get saved. It's not that big a deal. Don't be embarrassed. I had a preacher friend of mine in Ohio, pastor of church, church of over a thousand. He came forward in his own service and got saved. That's the truth. I can, I'll give your preacher his name. He's now with the Lord. Why not? Don't give up on your son or daughter or grandchild. Wear God out with your prayers. Pray and fasting. Jesus said, except for praying and fasting, don't give up. God's bigger than your child, your relative, your friend you care about. Do what Wanda Slafley did with this arrogant teenager. Love him, pray for him. Her deacon husband prayed every day until he died, even in Alzheimer's, prayed for me at 5.30 in the morning. Let's stand and bow for prayer if we could. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.